This is the Decoding Obesity Podcast, where we simplify, demystify, and decode obesity, helping you lose weight and feel great. So gear up for a fascinating journey through this ever-evolving field, and let's see what we find. And please remember that the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice. Don't forget to visit our website, www.decodingobesity.com, for show notes and more info. And now, here's your host of the Decoding Obesity Podcast, Dr. Avishkar Sabarwal. Hi, friend. Welcome to this episode of Decoding Obesity Podcast. We have talked about genetics and obesity in a prior episode. I came across Dr. Yo, who is a geneticist specializing in obesity. I thought it would be great to have him on the show to discuss this further from his perspective, especially as a geneticist who really takes a deep dive into this. Dr. Giles Yo got his PhD from the University of Cambridge in 1998, after which he joined the lab of Professor Sir Stephen O'Rahilly, working on the genetics of severe human obesity. He is now a program leader at the MRC Metabolic Diseases Unit in Cambridge, and his research currently focuses on the influence of genes on feeding behavior and body weight. And this is very fascinating to me as well. In addition, he's a graduate tutor and fellow of Wolfson College and honorary president of the British Dietetic Association. Dr. Yeo is also a broadcaster and an author presenting science documentaries for the BBC and hosts a podcast called Dr. Giles Yeo Choose the Fat. His first book, Gene Eating, was published in 2018, December, and his second book, Why Calories Don't Count, just came out in June 2021. Dr. Yeo was appointed as a member of the British Empire in the Queen's 2020 Birthday Honours for Services to Research, Communication and Engagement. Welcome to the show, Dr. Yeo. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me, Avishka. It is so fascinating to have, you know, you talk about this very topic. And I think a lot of people have questions about, you know, the role of genetics, especially as it pertains to obesity. So let's dive into this conversation. The burning question, is it all in the genes? Is it all in the genes? The answer is no, it's not all in the genes. I guess one of the things that people mistake about people studying genetics is that we study genes in isolation. And that's not true. We study genes and its interaction with the environment. So as it turns out, every single human trait and behavior, every single human trait and behavior will have a genetic influence. It's just how much compared to the environment. So we now know, generally speaking, that the role of genes in body weight obesity just sits on one end of the spectrum, is between 40 and 70%. So it's not zero, it's not 100%, but it's pretty high. It's nearly, it's about on average 50%. Yeah, that's substantial, right? I mean, 40 to 70%, it's a wide range, but still it plays a very, very big role from what I'm understanding from you. Yes, it plays a far bigger role than people expect because people think that obesity is a choice. People think that obesity is the result of bad habits and poor willpower. And there is a huge environmental aspect to it, obviously, right? But there is an unappreciated amount of biology that underlies why some people get larger than others. Interesting. And what are the common genes that we have found so far that are associated with obesity? So I think it depends on what kind of obesity we're talking about. So when I first started um, in the field, I was studying severe childhood obesity. So we're looking at three to four-year-old kids who are like 30 to 40 kilos, right? So this is not, you know, just a little bit chubby. And those kids, because really severely obese kids are quite rare, 
Okay. Right. We were beginning to find mutations with a capital M that disrupted genes that actually, you know, either deleted them or and and they then ended up causing severe obesity. And from there, most of those genes sit within a pathway called the leptin melanocortin pathway. And these are about, roughly speaking, 10 genes. I won't bore you necessarily with the details, but the critical nature of this pathway is it is the key fat-sensing pathway within the brain. Because your brain needs to know how much fat you have, because how much fat you have is how long you would last in the wild without any food. So if your food source stopped today, how long would you be able to survive for? And so one of the key pathways in the brain that controls food intake and therefore body weight senses the amount of fat you have and then is able to influence, well, okay, how much fat are you carrying? How hungry do you feel? How much do you actually need to eat? So in severe obesity, that is where the mutations tend to lie. In common variation in body weight, so regular, everyday, normal human beings wandering up and down, there are more than a thousand genes that we know that are associated with body weight changes or obesity, not causing. I was going to say, yeah, that's important to distinguish because association is very different from causation. Exactly, exactly. So, so what I was telling you about, about the severe kids, those are single gene mutations. You would have heard of diseases such as cystic fibrosis and you know, muscular dystrophy. Some of these obesity genes, they don't cause cystic fibrosis, but they cause a single gene defect causing obesity. Most of us, this is not true. Okay, For most of us, our body weight is influenced by, as I said, more than a thousand genes. Now, the pathways are a little bit murkier, but what we do know is that they pretty much all exist within the brain, these genes, and where we know their function influence our feeding behavior. So our body weight is primarily influenced by how our brain influences how we behave around food. Interesting. So it's not necessarily about how you store the fat or how you store the, the energy in your body. It's more about influencing the feeding behavior. That's what's causing it to happen from what I'm understanding. I think there are a number of things. It depends on what kind of characteristic you're looking for. When you're looking at body shape, do I have a big bottom versus a big tummy, big tummy versus a big bottom? Do I look like a sausage? You know, what size I am? Now, those genes tend to sit within fat. They tend to be about the ability of your fat to store fat right. and where you put your fat on your bum, on your tummy, et cetera, et cetera. But how much, so that's where you put your fat. How much fat you have, right. interestingly, is primarily driven by food intake. That doesn't mean that metabolism doesn't play a role. Right. It just means that those are the genes with the bigger effect and those are the genes we've managed to identify for the moment. So let's talk about the metabolism. What about the metabolism? I think uh, a lot of times people say that, you know, the metabolism is slow. I know that the BMR goes down as you lose weight, but what about the inherent variants or inherent differences in one's metabolism, you know, one person to another? So the most important thing for people to take away is actually, you know, people say, you're right. Oh, oh I, the reason why I'm larger is because I have a slower metabolism. Actually, the most powerful indicator for metabolism is your weight. And the larger you are, the higher your metabolism. You're going, no, that's not true. It's true. If you look at a tiny car, like a, a UK, you know, one of those old school UK minis, right. and you look at them, look how agile, zippy, goes around, woo, right? Whereas then you look at a four by four big vehicle, SUV type car, and you think, whoa, look, it's lumbering around, you know, must have very low, but it doesn't, right? Because the big car will always use more fuel right. than the small car. And that's true with human beings. That being said, 
there are differences between different people in their efficiency, just not as much as people would imagine, but they do exist. It is a true thing. There are going to be some people who can eat more than me, you know, and yet maintain my exact weight. Right. And I think that's also going to change as you age because your biology changes as you age. So, you know, your metabolism is going to change. So what somebody would have been able to do as, say, as a teenager, they may not be able to do as they grow older. So that is very true. And also, you have to remember that being a man, a male or female makes a huge difference, right? Because a man, we're simple creatures, we're born, we think about food, <laughs> we think about the other thing, that's about it. Whereas women have huge hormonal changes on top of everything to consider. Are you a woman pre baby? Are you a pregnant woman? Are you a woman post baby? Are you a woman post menopause? And all those huge hormonal hallmarks in their life have huge effects on their metabolism as well. So Women, far more complicated than men. But yes, in general, as you get older, there are changes to your metabolism. So how do we know that, you know, of course, we talk about, you know, around 50% of this is in the genes. But how can one know that, well, they inherited this or not? Okay, I realize we're looking at this from the prism of obesity. So you're Correct. looking about the risk of obesity. But actually, what we found out is that leaving aside the mutations. Of course. Yeah, I'm not talking about the rare forms. Let's talk about the bread and butter obesity. Okay. So the bread and butter common obesity, as we call it, the thousand gene obesity, so to speak. It's not like they're different genes, whether or not you are fat or obese or medium or skinny. Okay. It's just that imagine that each of the 1000 genes has two varieties. It has a variety that makes you slightly heavier and has a variety that makes you slightly lighter. Okay. Just, just so... You know, no one has 100% heavier genes and 100% lighter genes. That's not how biology works. So all of us sit somewhere in the middle. But some of us carry a little bit more and some of us carry a little bit less. And the more of the heavier variations you carry, the more likely you are to be heavy and vice versa. And if you are average, then you're more likely to be average. So it is always inherited to some degree. Now, what you're asking is how do you know your risk for obesity? Right. Do you know what there are? There is an expensive way to do it, and it's sort of very kumsi kumsa, and that is to take one of these genetic tests to tell you whether or not you're going to end up being obese or not. The thing is, those tests are not very predictable yet. The easiest way, and it's free, is to look at your parents. I know it's very depressing. But if you look at your parents, so a couple of things, okay? If you think about your mom or dad, should they be alive, right? Um, they say, well, whose body shape do I match? Do I match my dad or my mom? If they're alive or if they're not alive, what diseases do they have? What did they die of? What size are they? Now, these are information. It doesn't, once again, it doesn't necessarily predict, but it certainly predicts far better than a consumer genetic test at the moment. And it lets you see what's coming down the line. So you can see, ooh, my dad, mm, I know he had type 2 diabetes when he was 40. You can just look and say, well, maybe I need to worry a little bit about myself, even though I'm in my 20s or 30s. I'm not. I'm in my late 40s. But imagine if I was, you know, and I'm hedonistic and I don't care about my health because I'm 20 years old and I think <laughs> that I rule the world. But it's useful to look at your folks and say, well, OK, well, well, what are my folks like physical perspective? And there is a possibility that I could end up there. So that's a useful way to try and think, well, should I be mitigating? Should I be thinking about my health now? Right. And I think that's important to understand that at this point in time, all of the, the tests that we have available do not necessarily do a great job at predicting what's going to happen. And it's better to look at your parents or, or your grandparents or whatever and your ancestry overall. So a couple of things, I don't want to get sued. <laughs> a couple of things are true about the tests. They do accurately 
assay your genes. Right. Okay, so they know what variation you have. And the interpretation in which they make from them is based on publications, right? So they do look right. at papers. So, so no one is trying to lie here. Right. They just misinterpret the data because the data that these genetic tests are able to find, are able to provide, is population-level averages. So they've looked at 100,000, half a million people and say, if you got this variant, you are a little bit more likely to become heavy or not. Right. And that's very different from saying that if you have this, you definitely will become. Got it. Which is where the term association right. comes from rather than causes. I was going to say, yeah, so that is more of an association rather than the causation that it's giving us and that, you know, it should be taken with that in perspective. You know, let's talk about some of the rarer genetic forms of obesity that we see, because I know there are people who do suffer from these as well. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and a lot of times, you know, whatever measures we do try to help them with may not be successful because of the rarer genetic forms that they have. So let's talk about a few that you've seen and you've experienced in your, you know, in your practice. So well, let's talk about the most common of the rare ones, if you right, dig what I'm right, saying, right? right? And that is the one, it's called the mutation in the MC4R, the melanocortin-4 receptor. It's a brain receptor. And it's, one of the, it's in the fat sensing pathway. Okay, so in other words, if you have mutations in the MC4R, your brain is slightly less sensitive to fat. So just as an example, imagine you are carrying 20 kilos of fat on your body. But if your brain only senses that you have 18 kilos of fat, it may think 18, 18, I thought I had 20. It'll drive you to eat more to get you to 20, but you're already at 20, so you end up being larger than you should be. And so this was a gene we found first in 1998, so really quite a long while ago. But it's become clear that compared to all the rest that we can talk about, this is not that rare. Okay, It's not right. super common, but it's not that rare. So how common is it? Now, we worked with a group in Bristol called the Children of the 90s Study. And this is Bristol in the UK. And it was a birth cohort study where what they did was they took women who were pregnant between 1990 and 1992, recruited them, took DNA. And then when their babies were born, tracked them. Every year they've tracked them. Okay. And right. there are tens of thousands of these kids, no longer kids. They're now in their 30s, obviously. Right. And so we screened for the MC4R gene to find out how common it was and looked for mutations that cause a loss of functions. So we actually tested the gene. 0.3% okay, of a Bristolian population would carry mutations in the MC4R, that loss of function. Now, we'll get to caveats in a second, but what does this mutation lead to? So the, in these 0.3%, if you just isolate them, and at 18 years old, so just as they turn into an adult, if you carry one copy of the mutation in MC4R, you were on average 18 kilos heavier, 18, oh, wow. one eight kilos heavier, and of those eight, that's about five BMI points between 20 and 25, 25 and 30. Right. And of those 18 kilos, 15 kilos of which were fat. Oh, wow. So some were a lot fatter, some were not as fat. Okay, so, you know. And so if you actually expand the 0.3% to, say, the UK population, 65 million people, that's 200,000 people. Now, okay, now I got to give you the caveats because I'm a scientist and, and the caveats. So the, ca <laughs> the, so the caveats is that the Bristolian, the UK... So the Bristolian population we study was overwhelmingly white Caucasian. Right. So I think that the 0.3% is probably a safe assumption to make for populations of Northern European extraction. Got it. Now, we have, in our rare obesity studies, found mutations in MC4R in Chinese people. For those of you who don't know what it looked like, I'm ethnically I'm Chinese. In South Asian people, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, uh, um, Indians. And in black people, in purple people, in you know, what all kinds of people. So... 
The mutations exist in all ethnicities, but I just want to be clear that our 0.3% study was found in white Northern European Caucasians. So that's the only, that's the caveat. But I think there is no reason to think that it would be that different. So right. there are quite a few people out there who have a mutation in the MC4R, making them on average 18 kilos heavier when they're 18 years old. Wow. So th that's very fascinating, even though it's a very small proportion, but the impact that this gene has is phenomenal. It's, it's huge. So, so this is what it is, right? Where while relatively few people have it, you know, we've been talking about COVID where a small number of a big number is still a big number. Right. And that's the case. A small number of a big number is still a relatively big number. And it makes a difference. It makes a difference from a therapeutic perspective. And it makes a difference to the patient. Right. Okay? Now, if the patient goes in and they know that, oh, you know, I've always been big, why blah, 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 but really big. And you know, I think it helps in the motivation that says, well, do you know what? It's more difficult for me to lose weight because of this mutation. Now, some people might say, ah, hang it. I'm going to do what I want. You know, I, I don't care. But actually, most people find it motivating because they say, well, look, I want to try and lose weight for my health purposes. Um, but if I know I'm fighting biology, I'm hoping that it will give you a different motivation compared to someone telling you that you are bad. Right. I think that's that's very important to understand. You know, in the same breath, that doesn't mean necessarily mean that everybody needs to go and get tested for this particular mutation because it is very rare. Most commonly, it is, you know, a plethora of genes acting together in combination with the environment that we are in and what we call the obesogenic environment, which also plays a very significant role. Hugely. Correct. So, you know, how is the management then different for genetic obesity? Actually, I want to ask you a two-part question. Number one is how is the, the management different for these genetic forms of obesity? And number two being, I'm sure this is a question that uh, some people have in their mind is, is there any way that in their environment that they can change to say turn on or turn off the gene, sort of the epigenetic effects? Okay, so let's deal with the first bit first. Um, so the, sure. the management and then we'll deal with the epigenetics. So I think regular common gardener obesity, typically you end up going to a type 2 diabetic clinic because there's huge links. And it depends on which country you're in, where whether or not there are actually obesity services that, that are there. Some countries are going to be better than others. Right. And if you happen to be quite severely obese, once again, it depends on the country you're talking about. Of course, about. yes. But say in the UK, we have a national health service in the UK, and there are some drugs that are available. And currently, the drug either loraglutide, semaglutide, these agonists and they're drugs that are available, which if you fulfill a certain size. Yes. Okay. But if you are really quite severely obese and need to lose weight now, otherwise you've been serious harm, then you then are put in line for bariatric surgery. And of that's course. where you replumb your guts. Okay. Now, when you actually look at the rare obesities, there are now drugs. So this MC4R I told you about, there is now a drug that actually targets exactly that receptor. Okay. And that drug is called set melanotide. It's just a mimic of the hormone that binds to the MC4 receptor. So it has now been approved, certainly in, by the FDA and certainly in the UK, for treatment of rare genetic obesities, particularly the obesities that sit along the pathway, that leptin melanocortin pathway. And so for three of the rare for three of the rare causes of obesity there, that drug has been approved. Now the company, which is Rhythm Pharmaceuticals, I'm not paid by them, I'm just giving you information. Rhythm Pharmaceuticals are now having trials, you know, they're trying to get all of the rare obesities cleared for it before, I presume, they then open trials to the general population. So at the moment, there are different ways of doing it, how severely obese you are. And if you have rare, specific rare cases of severe obesity, 
there are now drugs that are specifically target those, some of those as well. And the set melanotide, is this in the pipeline for other rarer forms of obesity as well? So there are, so they're being tested for, I don't know if you know, Prader-Willi syndrome, yes. or I don't know if you that's a syndromic form of obesity, yes. which means that it influences your cognitive functions as well. So whereas the rare cases I do mostly don't touch your brain. So in other words, you are larger, but your IQ is on the average distribution. Whereas Prader-Willi syndrome, it does influence, you, you end up with developmental delay. So it's being on trial for PWS, Prader-Willi syndrome. For Bardet-Beetle syndrome, I believe it's being trialed as well. Trizo trials, not approved yet. And other genes within the leptin melanocortin pathway, because we know few of them and only three of them have been approved so far. So yes, they're working their way up the pathway. Right. And let's talk about the epigenetic effects now. I think uh, that will be very interesting to talk about. So epigenetics, just briefly, clearly, we can't change our genes, but epigenetics are the decorations on the genes that influence how genes are turned on and turned off. And so in very many ways, they are the interface, these epigenetic marks, decorations, are the interface between your genes, which don't change, and the environment, which changes every second of every day. There are a couple of issues with epigenetics. First of all, it is organ-specific. Okay, so in other words, unlike your genes, which are the same in every single part of your body and cell, the epigenome, these are the epigenetics changes, depend on what you're talking about. I'll give you an example in, in a second. That's the first thing. The second thing is that they're volatile. They change. They're not like alcohol. They don't just suddenly evaporate, but they do change over your lifetime and they do change over chronic exposure to specific conditions and stress and pollution and things and things like that. So they do change. Right. So leaving that aside... We know, for example, that the epigenetics of type 2 diabetes, of exercise, really quite well. And the reason why is because we have access to the target tissue. So in type 2 diabetes, it would be pancreas, quite difficult to get, but not impossible, a skeletal muscle, and fat. And for exercise, it will be skeletal muscle, etc., etc. The problem with the epigenetics of obesity is because, as I said, of those thousand genes that influence our feeding behavior and therefore body weight, most of them are in the brain. <laughs> and last I checked, we still, I can't go randomly taking <laughs> bits of brain out of the human head. So due to the inaccessibility of the target organ, the brain, actually, the epigenetics of obesity is really in only its embryonic stage. Now, I do now, we do now have access to postmortem samples. We are making progress. But we're not there yet, so I think we don't want to overstate the effects. Will there be an effect? Okay, does having a poor diet, does having the fact that you are heavier through a large proportion of your life, does it change? Is there a vicious cycle effect? Does it begin to change the genes so that you actually end up being worse? Or conversely, will having a healthier diet influence that epigenome? I think from first principles, it will be difficult to imagine why not okay from first principles you know that you know it certainly seems entirely plausible we just don't have the data yet oh interesting yeah that's very interesting to know so i think i think it just boils down to eating what we know is healthy and you know let nature take its course and whatever happens right at the end of the day i think so i mean Obviously, the challenge is what we define as healthy, right? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I mean, there are things which are obviously healthy, like no one's going to argue like carrots, <laughs> you know, and no one's going to say that you want to eat as much sugar as you can. But it's the big gray area in the middle, right? That's true. Too much of a good thing is still a bad thing. Too little of what we consider a bad thing is still a bad thing as well. So it's the gray area in the middle of what is healthy. And, you know, I think we talked about the genetic testing that's commonly available in the market, but I do see some of the programs actually, you know, talking about checking the genetics and making a diet plan based on your genetics. What's the reality behind all of this? So I think actually 
if you were going to take a genetic test, okay, to tell whether or not you're going to end up being heavier, I wouldn't waste your money because pretty much, like as I said, you can look at your parents. Even worse is a genetic test to kind of tell you what diet you should be on. Because BMI, imperfect though it is, is very easy to measure. It is free and it is empirical. So it's not subject to some imagination. Right. Food intake is subject to memory. What did you have for breakfast two weeks ago? Ah, uh, a porridge. Uh, uh, did you have, you know, how much? This and that. Okay. And so it is really, really, I think, overstating these companies telling you what diets you should be on. Now, there are some exceptions, if I might add. So once again, ethnically, I'm Chinese. I took one of these genetic tests. I won't name them, but I took one of these genetic tests for a newspaper. The newspaper wanted me to take it and sort of just write something up about sure. it. Sure. And I was prepared for the entire thing to be BS. Okay, I'll admit it. <laughs> and so I took the test, right? And the results came back in a very swish and posh and fancy PDF file. And I looked and I went, BS, BS, BS. But then, <laughs> now you look at me and say, I should have known this. It said that I was lactose intolerant. And I'm going, no, and I'm going, don't, don't, don't judge me. And so as it turns out, I am. It's just that there is a big range of lactose intolerance. And my favorite poison in the morning used to be a cappuccino. Oh. Okay. <laughs> now, without getting too visceral, certain circumstances, certain phenotypes occurred every time I drank my cappuccino, <laughs> but I thought this was normal. So I did, so I looked at it, then I did, so I removed the, I drank a black coffee instead, and they disappeared. I said, ooh. Then I did a crossover trial, so I reintroduced the cappuccinos, and it came back. I am lactose intolerant. So let me tell you what the main, not the main problem for someone who doesn't know anything about genetics at all, which is most people I want to point out, okay, they go into the test and they look at the results, all right? Now, they're going to be results that are based on genes, on traits, on traits such as my ability to digest lactose that are entirely based just on one gene. So it is predictable. So if I have that particular change, I can't digest lactose. The same thing is true for digesting alcohol, alcohol dehydrogenase. Right. Actually, the same is true for the gene that helps you metabolize caffeine. So some people have, these are all one genes. Whereas there are other traits, we talked about it now, body weight, height, you know, type 2 diabetes, that kind of thing, which is thousands of genes. But they mix it all together. They don't tell you this is a single gene trait. This is a multi-gene trait. They just say you are lactose intolerant. You have an average ability to handle alcohol. You go, ooh, that's correct. Ooh, that's true, right? And so in your head, you're already getting into it. You're going, ooh, they, they really know me. And so when they suddenly say, and you need to be doing resistance exercise because aerobically you're not so good or something like that you suddenly fall into a pattern and you begin to believe what their interpretation. Whereas they're mixing in single gene traits, which are predictable, with multi-gene complex polygenic traits, which are not predictable. Yeah, I think that's very important to understand that the single gene changes that occur and have an impact on our biology are obviously going to be easier to predict. Whereas we do not know, like you said, there are thousands of genes or at least a thousand genes that are interacting, especially for obesity. So we do not know exactly what is the amount of interaction that's going to happen and how much it's going to impact after it interacts with the environment to kind of cause this obesity. So kind of taking it at face value, especially for something like obesity, which is which is very complex, even genetically, I don't think it's ready for prime time yet. It isn't. And, and I just want to give you one example of environment actually having a huge role to play. Okay, so I'm a geneticist, and I'm not going to be underplaying the role of genes. But let's look at socioeconomic class, okay, privilege. If you take the bottom decile, the, the bottom 10%, let's say in the UK, 
all right? The bottom 10% of the socioeconomic ladder compared to the top 10% of the socioeconomic ladder, you're twice as likely to end up with obesity, actually with most diseases as well, but with obesity, than if you're poor compared to you're rich. Now, genetically, there is no difference between rich people and poor people. It's an accident of birth. So that is a classic example where you, you may have the susceptibility to actually end up being with obesity. But if you are poor, what happens with poor people, underprivileged people? You lack choices. That's what underprivileged means, right? If you're privileged, you can make all the choices in the world. You can make bad or good choices. You can do whatever the hell you want. The problem with being poor is you lack choices. And if you lack choices, you are unable to try and make the correct decisions about having a better environment. So that's very important to point out as well. So even though there are, you know, even though the association is like 50%, you know, of the genes have play a role in obesity and to whatever extent, environment still plays a huge, huge role in kind of the whole obesity as a disease. The one example I'll give, certainly in the UK, where the, where are there the highest density of takeaway places and all of the places? They tend to be inner city, okay? Right. Where do the poorest people live? They tend to be in the inner city in the so-called what we're calling food deserts, right. okay? Where they're not actually food deserts, but there are very few supermarkets. There are very few places that sell fresh vegetables and fresh fruit. And most of the, the stuff there is going to be like these takeaway places, right. which are very cheap, nutritionally low, but very cheap. Okay, someone did a calculation, um, certainly in the UK, that you can get for less than a pound, 900 calories oh, wow. okay, for, for one of these places. So calories are cheap, you know, but it doesn't mean that they're actually good. So if you are susceptible to obesity, say but are poor, and suddenly you get hungry and you're stuck in the middle of town and there's no fresh fruit around and that's what you end up eating. Compared to middle-class people, okay, I'm middle-class, you're middle-class, but middle-class people, if I'm suddenly hungry and I have carrots and hummus in my fridge, just as an example, all right, and I end up eating that or I end up going and cooking lentils or something like that, suddenly I have, you know, a better meal because I have the privilege to pay for it. I know what I'm actually going to do with it. So that's a classic example of your genes right. interacting with the environment. Right. And this has nothing to do with the fact with your genetic makeup per se. It's just about the circumstances that you're in. Luck, the lottery of life. Right, right. Well, let's talk about, you know, your book. I was very fascinated by the title Gene Eating. And then, of course, why calories don't count. So let's talk about both of them. What is exactly Gene Eating about? So gene eating is a play, <laughs> is a play on clean eating, okay? And clean eating is not one type of eating. It's not even, that's not even a word, but it's a group of fad diets. This includes gluten-free, if you are not celiac, plant-based, we'll come back to that in a second, not plant-based people, I know many people on plant-based who are vegan, but people who think there is no safe dose of animal protein, okay? Alkali diet, which is absolutely ridiculous. The crazy diets, okay? So right. that first book, Gene Eating, is a debunking of the myths of fad diets and actually explaining how the ones that do work, work. Because actually most of the fad diets work. That's, that's why they're popular, right? right? Because people take them, this is, well, look, it works. I've lost weight. But very rarely for the reason that they're sold, okay? On, on the webpage <laughs> or what have you. So that diet, that, that book, in essence, gene eating in essence, breaks down the popular diets that are out there. Not every single one, obviously, but the popular diets that are out there and explains how they work. I begin with what we talked about here, my genetics of obesity studies, but then much of it just goes into debunking myths about fad diets. And what about the new book that came out last year? So why calories don't count is my meditation on the calorie. And 
let's put it simply, I mean, you know, we worship the calorie, but every time we talk about calories and food, we talk about cutting them. We never talk about adding them. Okay. Right. This is always a, <laughs> It's always an interesting thing to me. And we now live in a society that, broadly speaking, we equate the number of calories in food with how good the food is. Okay, oh, this is a high-calorie meal. Mmm, terrible. Oh, this is a low-calorie meal. It must be a good thing. But my book, in effect, that if I had given a one-line thesis of the book, is that we eat food, we don't eat calories. So we eat food, and then our body has to work to extract the calories from the food, okay? And depending on what it is, okay, depending on what it is, depending if it's a carrot, if it's a donut, or if it's a steak, your body has to work more or less hard to get the calories out. So all calories are exactly equal because they're a unit of energy. Once we've extracted them, and once they're in us, like a little poof of energy. But when they're in the food, they're completely different because... No one's going to try and compare a carrot with a steak. You're just not, okay? Right. Because, because they're so very, very different. And so that's what the book's about. So I go into details about the history of the calorie, how it was calculated right. and about that. And then, and then I talk about diets again, but once again, with a different prism, through the prism of this availability of calories. So it's my meditation on the, on the calorie. <laughs> but we eat food, not calories. That is very fascinating. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Yeo, for joining me and uh, you're sharing your wealth of knowledge on this very complex and intricate topic. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in and I'll see you all next time. You've been listening to the Decoding Obesity Podcast. Please remember, the information in this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the host and his guests and do not constitute medical advice. Views and opinions on this show do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of any organization. And that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening in. Don't forget to visit our website, www.decodingobesity.com for show notes and more info. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.